Hello, I'm Andy Merckx. Welcome to the Velocast. to a special edition of the Velocast, which features an interview with former US Postal and Team CSC writer Tyler Hamilton. The interview was broadcast live on Sunday the 7th of March 2010 via the live page on our website at www.velocast.co.uk forward slash live. Let's get this this show on the road. Um, As I said just a moment ago, and I would like to kind of reiterate for for anyone that, that wasn't listening, Thank you very, very much, and welcome, Mr. Tyler Hamilton, to the Velocast. Hey, thank you, John and Scott, for having me on. I really pre- appreciate it, and um, it's a pleasure to be talking to the two people in Scotland. A long way away. A long way away. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're just, we've just got a few things we'd like to ask you, if that, that's okay, but um, going back to what must have been your, your, your first love, skiing, you, how have you enjoyed the Winter Olympics recently? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. I was really glued to the television. Um, you know, I grew up, but the first Olympics I remember watching was 1980 in, in Lake Placid, you know, watching the, um, watching the U.S. hockey team beat, beat the Soviets. Um, and I've just been a huge fan of the, of the Olympics ever since. And so I, I pretty much watched the whole Olympics as much as I could. And whatever I couldn't watch on television, I watched... Uh, computer yeah yeah it's been a great a great year for uh i, I thought this particular winter olympics has been, been one of the best that i can remember yeah it was, it was just beautiful i watched a lot of the skiing uh the, the alpine skiing which was what i used to do in, in the cross-country skiing and uh i started getting really into the hockey at the end and you know u.s you know got nipped in overtime there to the Canadians, which was a bit of a bummer, but <laughs> c'est la vie. C'est la vie, indeed. Well, going going back to the early nineties, you you know you you talked about being a skier and and you were a skier at the University of Colorado. Uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, you asked us the question right at the off, and, and it's a question that fascinates me as well: is what what actually makes people choose cycling? So, what was it that made you switch? Well, I always um, you know for. Training for uh, for alpine ski racing um, in the summertime, I you know I'd lift a lot of weights and I uh, did a lot of running and uh, did quite a bit of cycling, and um, so I had a bit of a background just just a lot of a lot of time on the bike, but I didn't really race a whole lot. You know, I jumped in a criterium once in a while, um, but my soft my second year, my sophomore year. At, the University of Colorado I had an accident training with the ski team, and I broke two, two vertebrae in my upper back. Oh, oh. And so that, that took me up to skis for that season. And uh, once I, I was in bed for about six weeks, and once I got out of bed, they said the doctor said I could ride, you know, ride ride by my road bike. And uh, so I was really frustrated that I couldn't couldn't race that season and uh, on the skis and. So I started riding a lot and um, joined the university university cycling team. And next thing I know, I was the uh, collegiate national champion. And I guess the rest is history. Yeah, I never never really looked back. And then it's just cycling took over. And next thing, I, you know, the following year I was on the U.S. national team, and the following year I was professional. So it happened really quickly. And it sort of happened by accident. It, it did seem to, and I was obviously kind of in, in preparation from talking to you today, looking back to to see, and you know that 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 back injury you mentioned was, I think, in late 1991. Uh, late 1991, correct, correct. Yeah. And so, from 91 to I think probably what the start of 95, where you you turned pro and signed for Montgomery Bell, who were obviously soon to become U.S. Postal. That's that's an amazing journey. I mean, did you realize straight away that, that cycling was something you could do professionally in, in the absence of skiing? Um, you know, every I, I just try to enjoy the moment. And every, you know, when I signed my first professional contract, I thought, you know what, 
this is great. I'm getting paid to do something that I absolutely love, and I, I would have done it for free. <laughs> uh, but I and I didn't. But I really didn't look too far down the road. Um, I just sort of enjoyed it for what it was, and I kind of I didn't I didn't have any clue that it would lead to where it led. So that it wasn't it wasn't something that you kind of felt you know after even a year or so that oh I I can set my sights on on turning pro and doing this. It would just you essentially followed where no pun intended the road took you. More or less, more or less, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for example, like by 1997, uh, we the U.S. Postal Service team was selected as a wild card entry for the Tour de France, and, and we were select we were selected, I think, in March, March or early April, and uh, then at that point, I was like, okay, maybe I can make the tour, t- you know, the nine man tour team. Yeah, and that was my obje- objective. And once I made it. Tour team, you know, it was, I thought just being on the start line in the Tour de France was more or less as good as it ever was going to get. And, uh, you know, the next goal was just to maybe I can finish the Tour de France. And then, you know, I just I kept taking these baby steps. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, I was helping, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong win the Tour de France. So it happened really fast. And, you know, I felt like just yesterday I was back in, in, in college. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will share that that sentiment of you know lining up at the Tour de France. It, it doesn't get much better better than this. Yeah, exactly. No, it's the biggest and best race in the world. It's uh, as they say, it's the Super Bowl of cycling. Yeah, so, you know, by far my favorite race. So you mentioned obviously U.S. Postal there, and and, and I did earlier. You know, turning pro and signing for Montgomery Belt. What what was it like? What was the team like? And and in those early days, I mean, I think we can kind of neatly categorise U.S. Postal pre-Lance Armstrong and post-Lance Armstrong. So what, what was yeah. the team like when, when you first first joined? Yeah, I'm not sure if, like, all the listeners have seen the movie. It's called The Bad News Bears. But it's, a, it's a, about a scrappy little young baseball team that basically went on to, um, to uh, do great things. But, you know, they were very scrappy and very sort of unorganised and I'd say the early years of U.S. Postal were like that. You know, the uh, you know even in 1999 when Lance won the tour, you know we didn't have a, a team bus or anything. We had a couple of rented campers that we, you know. <laughs> so you know most most of the teams have a bus and they all you know go to the race and after the race go into the bus and we had two campers. So you know we had maybe four guys in one camper and five guys in the other. Well, so what a difference that, from now. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those, you know, rented RVs on the, on this. Sure. Had a, uh, you know, something like one eight hundred RV on the side. <laughs> um, I mean, we, we mentioned Lance there, and as I say, I, I think it's in hindsight easy to categorise U.S. Postal pre and post Lance. Um, I mean, when Lance joined, what, what did you make of him when when he when he came in? You know, he first came onto the team in 1998, um, and you know he still had a lot of question marks because he he wasn't sure you know you know p- post cancer w- where he could go and whether he still had it. Um, he was, I think, very reserved back then, and um, not you know he didn't have the confidence that he has now. That's for sure, uh, but just justifi- justifiably so. Um, I think there are yeah. very, very few people in the world that have got Lance's confidence now. No, exactly, exactly. No, he's got a lot of confidence, but you know that's what you know, that's a key. To, that's a key to his success for sure. sure. Uh, did you? I take it from from the way you're talking, you didn't know him beforehand. No, I knew obviously I knew of him, but and I think he knew of me. But um, first time I ever really got to talk to him was in 1998 um, on U.S. Postal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember we were roommates quite a bit at the races and um it, it was uh it was fun you know talking to him and, and learning about uh sort of what he had gone through and you know before cancer and, and through his fight against cancer sure um i mean the the, the team obviously went you know, through through the roof um, after that period, going into '99 when, when Lance came back and, and winning the first tour, was there any kind of feeling that 
this was a team that, that was being organised around winning the Tour de France because I, I, th- I think if there's if there's a criticism of, of Lance in that era it was he focused his entire season and, and I think probably as a, as a consequence organised the team round winning the Tour and not much else. Did you, did you ever get a feeling that that was, that was going to be the case? Well, I mean, the Tour de France is the biggest race in the world, you know? I mean, the, any team could get dead last in every race throughout the whole season, but if, if they win the Tour, it's been a success. And, um, you know, you know to, to the sponsor, U.S. Postal Service, you know, that was by far the, the biggest objective. And so, um, yeah, that was our, our main focus for the team. And, um, you know, my main role there once once we learned that Lance could could be a tour contender was to, to help him win the tour. Did you find it hard to kind of subjugate your own ambitions, if you like, to Lance's? Because, I mean, that team had loads of riders that went on to become leaders in their own right. I mean, at what point did you think it's time to break out and go for it myself? Uh, I started considering it um, sorry, uh, during and after the 2000 season. Well, um, the, the 2000 was the year you won the Dauphiné, wasn't it? I won the Dauphiné, yes, yes. I, I mean, I remember that iconic picture of you looking back over your shoulder at, uh, at Lance coming up to you in the period you just destroyed the field. <laughs> I mean, that was, that's a brilliant picture. So was that the kind of genesis that you're thinking, I can do this myself? I mean, that was a breakthrough ride for me, absolutely. Um, and I started, you know, a lot of people were saying, why don't you, do, why don't you go off and to ride as a leader on another team and... Um, um, you know, I had another year on my contract, and I wanted to respect that. And uh, you know, they had done a lot for me. Yeah. Uh, so I rode for one more year through 2001, and uh, after that, I made the decision to make a change. And it just came down to really, for myself personally, I was I got to the point where I could uh, look back three years and then look ahead three years and see myself really in the same role. And I never wanted to. Uh, you know, look back after my cycling career was over and and and, uh, and regret not not giving myself a shot. Hmm. Hey, I mean, from my point of view, arguably your move to, to CSC, you could say you went to work for, you know, or you've worked for both of the dominant director sportives of the you know the the early twentieth or twenty first century. Um, were their styles very different? Quite a bit different, quite a bit dark, different. You know, Bjorn Reese is uh, a man of few words, but you know, when he talks, you, you listen and you, uh, um, you know, he's definitely a, he's probably a, a more of a reserved guy. And um, Johan, uh, you know, certainly speaks a lot more in the radio. Um, but I have huge respect for both those guys. You know, they're both great directors and um, really enjoyed riding underneath both of them. So, so you mentioned, uh, obviously, you went, you went to CSC and um, t- talked about the, the kind of difference between director sportives and, and, and Johan and, and Bjarne Reese. Uh, what about the, the culture of the, the team itself? How, how did it feel coming from an American team um, to something that could be argued as being more the kind of traditional European cycling model of, of, of racing? Um, yeah, it was quite a bit different. You know, that we, you know, in U.S. Postal, it was definitely, you know, they had an American style to it. Uh, everybody spoke pretty much fluent English. And, um, you know, going to, going to a new team is, um, you know, we did, the main language on CSE was English. But, um there was, you know, riders. I, I believe at one point we had maybe a team of 24, 25 guys with 12 to 13 different nationalities. So that was pretty crazy on CSC. Hmm. Um, so that, that was a big change for me, but but I, I really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed that. Uh, was there any kind of differences in, in how, how you would how you would train or, or how you would approach races with with CSC as opposed to US Postal? Oh yeah, sorry about the phone there. That's the right. <laughs> That's okay. uh, yeah, it was definitely a huge, huge change. You know, for me, it was more about um, when I went to CSC. I was more of a team leader, and um, I got a shot to really ride the races that I wanted to do, and, and 
the races that I wanted to target have a team more or less behind me. And um, so that was a huge change. And also just learning to become a team leader, um, both on and off the bike. That was a huge change for me. And it, you know, it didn't come easy at the beginning. Did you? I mean, that's, I was just going to ask that. Did you find the, you know, the pressure was was far more than you expected in that change? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit more pressure, I guess. You know, you have a lot of guys counting on you. You know, in a race like, um, let's see, in 2000, my first year with CSE, my big objective was the Giro d'Italia, and um, yeah, to have a, you know, to have eight guys basically riding for you, it's um, you know, you, you don't you don't want to mess up because like you know, you know they're giving everything for you, and uh, so yeah, it gives you a little extra pressure. But I kind of liked it. I liked it, and it certainly helped motivate me. And um, was able to finish second in the Giro that year. Yeah, with uh, a broken shoulder blade. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just about to ask, you, and that's to be honest with you, those those years at CSC were were categorised neatly by by a few key events and this is something I've, I've, I've actually you know always wanted to ask second place at the Giro with a broken scapula 2003 cracked collarbone at the Tour de France and still finished I mean how how do cyclists deal with pain like that it, it just seems to me absolutely phenomenal that, that, that people can drag themselves around a three week Grand Tour to begin with and then do it with bits of them falling off yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's tough to explain. But you know, you for you know, I worked so hard there in 2002 to get ready for the Giro, and um, you know, nothing was going to stop me. And, and same really in 2003 in the Tour de France with the, my collarbone. I, mean, uh, I remember the pictures yeah. that you followed off from the Giro. It was really sickening. I mean, it, it, from memory, it looked like your free hub locked up essentially. No, yeah, the, the free hub. The free hub actually, because a lot of people, want, you know. They thought it was just a bad descender or something, but I uh, I, I broke the free hub right off the, the the wheel. Yeah, that's I mean that's what it looked like, and I remember looking at it and just feeling yeah. sick. Just it's the same. Effect, it's more or less the same effect as breaking your chain. Yeah. Ooh. So I, I stood up. I coming down. A, uh, went through a switchback and uh, came out of the turn and started got out of the saddle to sprint and um, basically more or less the chain broke and I went straight over the bars. But I was I was really lucky because uh, my teammate Carlos Sastre was probably about thirty seconds behind me, and he came flying around the corner. I was like, "I need your bike." It's an interesting <laughs> definition of luck. <laughs> yes. You know, no, I, was, really I mean, I was, I was lucky, you know, because it could have been, you know, if I had to wait for the team car. The my, you know, geez, general classification would have been over. Now, I, I, I will have a wee chat later on about equipment, but was that the year where you were riding Parleys that were badged as looks? It looked very like it. Uh, it, was, it was a Parley. Yeah, it I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. Cool bike. Great, and, uh, great bike, great bike. Look, looks were great as well, but um, I think um, the Bob Parley, the, the uh, builder of the bikes, the owner of the company, is a good friend of mine, and... Um, and actually, look, gave me the okay to ride it in the uh, Giro. Well, it wasn't you. I mean, there's a long history of people riding rebadged stuff if they, you know, if they prefer it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I still ride one today. Cool. So, love them. I, I'd, I'd like to obviously uh, say that um, th- those performances with with you know broken scapula and, and cracked collarbone have actually given men the world over a comeback uh, to to women who complain bitterly to us on, on occasion about the pain in childbirth, because we can now turn around and say Tyler Hamilton. So, <laughs> so thanks for that, Tyler. <laughs> Okay, no problem, no problem. I, whatever I can do, whatever I can do. <laughs> um, next question then. Um, we, we talked about coming second, obviously, in the Giro, but looking back, what was the what was your favourite win of, of your pro career? Um, yeah, it's a tough, you know, I've had that question asked many times. That's a tough call. You know, the, the winning that tour stage in 2003 uh, solo was pretty special. Just the way it all sort of went down, I took a gamble and and um, it was the last mountain stage. And I, yeah, think I, feel, I, was I, I feel really guilty about moaning about my elbow being a bit sore because you were away for 140 k on your own with a broken collarbone, <laughs> weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was like my last. It was the day after the second rest day, 
And I think I was in seventh place overall. And, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't really matter if I was seventh or eighth or sixth. So, you know, because really who remembers that? So um, I, the, on the rest day, I think I, I laid in bed the whole day. I was extremely tired. You know, my body had been fighting not just the tour, but, you know, the collarbone. So I rested really well and uh, woke up the next day, felt felt great, and had a conversation with Bjorn Reese the, the night before about, you know, taking a gamble. And uh, I just went for it and didn't, didn't look back. So, so that, that one you re- reckon is probably your, your favorite? Oh, sorry, that was, you know, that was a special one, a special yeah. one just because, you know, it was um, just the, just because of the length, length of the breakaway and, um, you know, with the coll- having the collarbone injury and then, you know, moving up to fourth place overall. Sure. That was great. And to win a, win a stage in the Tour de France, like, you know, that's just fantastic. Uh, I mean, for a process. Uh, you know, win- so then winning Liège best on Liège was Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, that, that was the one I was going to bring up. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, that was just great. And, you know, that was kind of the extreme opposite. It happened right, you know, close to the finish line when I got away. And, um, you know, I couldn't believe it. Liège, best on Liège was, is certainly, in my opinion, the hardest one-day race in the world. Well, you I'd, know, I'd have trouble I, walking. I, I've never done I, but I haven't ever, I never did Paris-Roubaix, so. There were, at least with the races I've done, it's um, the hardest one-day race. And then, you know, winning the gold medal was fantastic. Just I've always been a huge fan of the Olympics. And um, I, knew I, I knew I had a shot to get a medal. Um, and I was certainly probably one of the favorites, but probably not a big favorite to win the gold. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, rode, I rode so hard and left everything out on the road and I, I didn't have any a radio it had fallen out 5k into the race so I had no idea when I finished mm. and uh, that was pretty special sure um, one thing that I, I never saw being asked at the time although I mean if if I missed it and it has been asked forgive me but um, what was your relationship or, or indeed is your relationship with um, Ekimov who of course was former teammate at US Postal after the 2004 Olympics um, yeah, we seem to be, you know, we're friend, friendly on U.S. Postal, and um, we, I, we got along really well. We roamed together quite a bit. Um, yeah, I think he was disappointed he didn't win the gold, um, but I think he was happy to win a medal. I think he was surprised to win a medal. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we, we've always been cordial. You know, I think I saw him last year, and no hard feelings. Sure, sure. Um, right, we've, we've kind of touched on that bloody big elephant in the room, but before we go any, f- <laughs> before we go any further, I mean, I, I don't know if you've listened to our show at all, um, but we've... I have not, I'll be honest with you, I have not. I have no, not, no, don't, don't you worry about it. <laughs> I'll start listening now. We, we've always said publicly that it's, it's absolutely pointless demonising riders over, over doping. Um, <laughs> You can. You guys can ask me any question you want. No problem. Sure, I, pre- I appreciate that. Um, but I mean, I, I didn't want this to, to sound like you know, oh, it's, it's not going to be another one of those interviews. Um, but we're just kind of trying okay. to put forward where we are coming from. That in terms of, of the, the whole doping thing, we don't believe yep. that that demonising riders actually helps the situation whatsoever um, because it's a cultural thing that I think needs to change. Um, I mean, you, you've said you, yourself that the system is set up. So that you are guilty on until proven innocent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what, what do you feel about about um, the system as it as it kind of currently stands? Well, it's, it seems like it's it's getting a lot better, um, but there's still there's still a lot of work to be done, in, in my opinion. Um, I don't think it, in general it's a it's a very fair system. Um, you see a lot of other sports out there, and they're um, the athletes have have a say, and the athletes, you know, whether whether it's a union or just, which I think having a strong union in cycling, I think would be a good idea. Um, but basically, in cycling, we're, we're a bit, we're kind of like pawns. 
we're told what to do and um, you know hopefully that that'll change in the, in the near future hmm. um, just just going back then um, to, to, to your own experience and, and, and what you went through you, your lawyers brought forward the notion of um, chimerism at, at your appeal I mean what, what do you think about yeah. going down that that route well, now? yeah that's that's one of the that's one thing that has gotten just um, the you know the press picked up on that and went with it and, and it's unfortunate but I wish I made my uh, my hearing public uh, we brought up the notion of chi- I, we never claimed that I was chimeric or that basically having a, a vanishing twin in your mother's womb um, but it's one way to, to get a false positive for homologous blood doping um, there are other ways too but that was one thing we brought up because they said there's basically the, uh, the, pro- the prosecutor said there was no way that there could be a false positive which is you know a bunch of garbage yeah there was one thing we brought up, and then the press found out about that and went with it, claiming that I cl- was claimed to have a false, to, to have a um, vanishing twin. Which kind of comes back to, to the notion Which, of guilty until proven innocent. You know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah, I mean, basically, we had to go out. I mean, I spent a lot of money in, on my defense. Well, we had to go out and basically, we went out and did the research for this test that had never been um, really. Um, validated and you know they won't be happy that I said this but they, they stopped running that test for over a year after after my case because it didn't it didn't work properly and we basically we basically did the research for them and showed them clearly that it didn't work properly one of their but they won't, they won't tell you that and if you get one of them on the phone or on your podcast they will not confirm that but I mean, so what, yeah, one of the listeners is just asking: isn't, isn't it possible for you to to make the transcript public now, or are they just under under lock and key? Well, it's, you know what? It's looking back. I wish I made my my uh, my hearings public because that would have made my life a lot easier, um, and people could have really seen what went down in the hearings and sort of um, how nasty they were in in the. All the different things that came up, because you know, pretty much what you guys know is maybe ten percent, if that, of this whole story. Which is kind of why. That, I, I, yeah. I, that being I, said, that being said, it's a great question um, by the listener. Um, I'd love to write a book someday, um, but you know, I'm not. I'm not itching to do it. You know, probably this year or anything. But um, I think it would. It would. It would just be great to tell the whole story. I mean, it would be great for me and great for sort of the public to really to see really what went down. I mean, the more openness, the better. I think. What's that? The more openness, the better. I think. I think holding things behind closed doors doesn't do anybody any favors for the UCI. I mean, again, again, that's why that's why we should have should have made the the hearing public. You know, but it was all new to me, and I didn't know. I, I felt like, in respect to the. To the UCI, we should keep the hearing closed. But you know, little did I know then. Sure. Uh, I mean, we, we spoke in our own show uh, towards the end of last year about how Operation Puerto had had come to an end and had essentially been an absolute failure. Um, what was your take on on the whole affair? Uh, it's just a big casino, really. Um, I never was contacted once. Uh, you know, the only. The only reason why uh, I found out about it was just through reading about it. Nobody ever contacted me. There was nothing. Uh, you know, I, con- I contacted the UCI to try to uh, clear my name, and there was there was no uh, reply on what I could do or anything. So basically, I've just sat around and seen my name dragged through the mud. You know, but it's uh, you know when the, all the names initially came out, you know there was the names changed around quite a bit, and it was pretty interesting how that all went down. Yeah, and again, very strange. Yeah, yeah, very strange. But wouldn't I mean? Wouldn't you think that isn't it strange they never contacted me, never 
nothing, no correspondence, zero. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's really weird. And the one thing that always got me about Puerto is that the cyclone was just one part of the, uh, the investigation. And none of right. the names of the footballers or the tennis players were ever brought into the public realm. Right, right, right. So, I mean, that, that, that we've, I mean, we've talked about that quite a lot. Um, the, I mean, the other thing, and, and what finally, I think, ended your career was your struggle with depression, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I think anybody that knows me will know that there have been times where, you know, the, the pain of suffering on a bike's helped me stay in the kind of straight and narrow quite a bit. When you look around the peloton, or there, I mean, I look around the club here and there's lots of people who use the bike to control their mood. Are there lots of pro cyclists who struggle as well? Um, you know, the, I, I, would, I would assume so. But, you know, de- the you know, depression, people don't talk about it openly. Yeah, which is yeah. wrong. I mean, because it it's, it's totally wrong. wrong. No, because, you know, if you have another debil- debilitating disease, you know, people talk about it. And, uh, but with depression, yes, pretty much uh, they keep it to themselves or, or just within their, you know, family, family and close friends. Uh, yeah, something I've suffered with since... Um, I was at least clinically diagnosed with it in 2003, just after, just after the Tour de France there. And, um, That's why you were doing the rides of your life. Yeah, but it's, I mean, surprising. People from the outside, I was, you know, I finished the Tour that year, and in August I, I was, um, you know, on, on some of the morning shows here in the, in the States. Um, I uh, rang the opening bell on Wall Street. I threw out the first pitch at the... Boston Red Sox game, which is my favorite baseball team, and they had a big parade in my hometown. Uh, they put up a big sign saying "Hometown of Tyler Hamilton." So all these great things, all these things that I never, in my wildest dreams, would thought that would would ever happen. Um, so from the outside, I probably looked like I was on top of the world, but in, inside, I was a mess. Really. Are you finding it a lot easier to cope with now you're out of the pressure cooker a bit? You know, I think I've suffered with depression most of my life, and it's just something I have, and it's something that's um, it's in my family. You know, it's 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 been passed down to me. My uh, my great grandfather had it. My grandmother had it, and uh, unfortunately, she took her life because of it. Uh, my mother has it, and my sister has it. So you know, it's something something I have, and I just have to deal with it. And um, you know, on a, really on a daily basis, it's, it's just. But it's something I can keep in check, and but I need to. My problem was I didn't really. Um, uh, you know, when I was clinically diagnosed with it, you know, I started medication, mm-hmm. and I just thought, okay, check that off the list. If I, you know, take the, you know, I mean, the depressant pill every day, then I'm, I'm good. But I just kind of neglected it, and. Um, you know, sometimes you need to change medications. Um, sometimes, you know, going... I think talk therapy is great as well. And I've been doing that a lot in the last uh, nine months. So, you know, you can't... Basically, I put it on the back burner. And that was a big mistake that I made. But, you know, I, I learned a lot. And uh, it's just something you have to... You have to realize you have it and realize that you have to, um, I guess, keep it in check. And, and I mean, you, were you able to talk about it in the peloton, or was it you know the kind of gladi- gladiatorial thing where you know there's nothing yeah. for you and you can't show weakness? Yeah, kind of, kind of gladiatorial thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't want to. Sh- you know, maybe looking looking back now, maybe I'd do it differently. But you know, as a certainly after I was clinically diagnosed, you know, I was a team leader at that point. And I didn't want to show my teammates or the staff. My, a weakness, you know. I want to show them I'm strong, both mentally and physically. So, yeah, I didn't really talk about it. Which I, I think, you know, depression is something that is is quite common in my family as well. So, I, I, everything you're saying is, is something that I, I I've seen pretty close to home, Tyler. Um, you know, not wishing to show anything regarding your your illness is, is something that is so. You know, it just epitomizes uh, depression completely. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's sad. It's sad, and I really want well, I want to help you know people who have depression. You know, get out and talk about it more openly. It's uh, because once you start talking about it, 
um, you know, you learn. You, a lot, of the, a lot of other people will come to you and talk about it, and it really helps a lot. Helps so much. And I can't tell you how many people have have come out to me and, and told me yeah. about them suffering with depression as well in the, in the last since I since I came out with it in April. Um, and you know, it, it just helps, and it helps to, to talk to people and. and, and learn how they're dealing with it and give them advice and maybe they give you advice. Um, but certainly, I mean, the people with depression, it's something you can't neglect. Absolutely. You have to, it's there and, you know, you might be there for the rest of your life and with a little bit of work every day, you can uh, live a happy life. Hmm. You know, whether that's medication or, you know, some talk therapy or whatever it may be. Um, obviously, being um, active is really important. Um, so I think that helped me a lot throughout my career, just getting out on the bike. Um, and, I th- and I think actually I was able to, I think I suffered with depression my whole p- professional career. And, but I think the riding just really subsided it. Um, but it, I, it finally came to a head in, in uh, 2003. Sure. Um, as someone you know who, who's now looking at cycling from from the outside now, I mean, what, the UCI are herald, heralding the success of the the biological passport program. What's what's your own thoughts on on drug testing as as we stand at the minute? Um, you know, it seems like it's getting better. I've I've always said that it's um, that the out of competition testing is the best way to clean up any sport. Um, you know, I was one of the when back in like the spring of 2000, um, the um, what was it? USA Cycling asked me if I'd want to be, you know, be a part of this, and I it was well, it was just a um, I could say yes or no, and I uh, I chose to do it. So I, I've been I I was doing the out of competition testing since yeah this, the spring of 2000, and um, I think it's the best way it's the best way to to, to clean, clean up sport. You know, I'm not, I don't really follow the whole, this whole biological passport thing too much. It sounds, it sounds like it's a step in the right direction, but it sounds like there's a lot of room for improvement still. But I definitely say it's a step in the right direction. Um, I mean, uh, that big question there, I mean, blue sky thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you ever think we'll be rid of drugs in the sport, or is it just something that... I, as as sportsmen, they're always looking for, a, you know, an advantage over, or just actually as, as human beings, we're always looking for an advantage over over others. Um, that's a tough question. I mean, I would I would hope so. I'd hope you know to one day be able to say to to the kids, to kids out there who are looking to get into cycling that you know it's a hundred percent clean sport. Um, but yeah, you never know. Everyone's always looking to for some sort of advantage. You know. Um, whether it's in sport or whether it's in business, and uh, so that's a that's a tough question to answer. Sure. Um, right. Another question now. But I, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Sure. Absolutely. Another question now, but um, more your uh, your thoughts on just being an American. There, there's news over the past couple of months on the the possibility of the Giro coming to to Washington in 2012. Um, yeah. As a First of all, I suppose an American cyclist, um, but secondly, as a, as a former pro, what, what do you what do you make of that that possibility? Uh, well, I mean, I think it would be fantastic. I think it would be fantastic as a spectator. Now, I think it would be great. Um, and what what better way to showcase the Giro d'Italia than having it come here to the states? Uh, and I think it would be great for for American cycling because. A lot of people here in the states think there's one race every year, and that's the Tour de France. You know, uh, I used to get back from from nine months being in Europe, you know, racing a hundred days a year, and you know, my neighbors would think the only thing I did all year was racing the Tour de France. Now, cast your mind back about five years or so, and you're a professional. If you cast your mind back about five years and you're still a professional cyclist, you've premiered yeah. all year for the Giro. And suddenly your DS comes up to you and says, you know, you're never going to believe what they've done. We've got to fly 3,000 miles for the prologue. Right. right. That's why I said I think it's great just being a spectator to, 
to have it started in Washington. But I think it's going to be it's a it's a little bit tough on on the athletes on the cyclists. Um, so hopefully they'll make it, you know, maybe a, a double rest day or something where they can because it's it's not easy on your body to you know fly fly back to Italy or wherever they're going to restart the Giro in Europe. Um, it's certainly not easy, and that you know this the six hour time change along with uh, you know just just the jet lag just the your body sometimes has a hard time uh, responding the next day after you've had a long flight like that. Um, I suppose it's the same for everyone. I mean, that's the only kind of saving grace. Yeah, it's true, true, true. But I think it would be great for the sport of cycling, absolutely. A little bit, you know, not so easy on the, on the riders, um, but hopefully they can be, uh, be uh, you know, hopefully they can get, get the riders' input before and uh, do what's best for the riders. Um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's doing a few short and, and relatively flat stages uh, the next few days after returning to, to Europe or to Italy. Now, earlier this year, um, we lost my wife's younger sister to MS. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry. Well, what I was going to say is, um, you know, we've got an understanding of what you know what inspired you, but what you know what actually made you set up the, the foundation. Um, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I just lost a really good friend uh, two weeks ago from, from MMS as well. It's an awful disease. Um, I just I had a good friend of mine. His mother-in-law had, had MS um, or has MS, and um, he uh, he was actually my first agent back in the mid '90s. And he asked me as I returned back from Europe. Um, from a long season in Europe, and he had he asked me to come join an MS um, charity ride close to Boston. And you know, I thought I didn't know a whole lot about the disease, and I thought, oh, you know, why not? If I can, if I can be of help, absolutely. And really, from from I met, it was uh, really inspiring to be on the ride. I was you know riding with all different ages and abilities, um, and everyone there was doing the ride for a different reason. Some people had MS themselves. Other people were doing it for their husband or wife or son or daughter. You know, some people were doing it for, for a co-worker or, you know, other people were just doing it because they loved to ride their bike and it was for a great cause. And uh, so after that first MS ride, I continued to, uh, to support these rides and do, do as many as I could in the off-season. And then by... Um, Let's see, by 2003, I decided to start my own foundation. I became the president of the um, cycling series with the MS Society in, the, mm-hmm. I think, around 2000. And then basically I was giving so much of my time, I thought at that point, by 2003, why not start my own foundation? And, um, yeah, the rest is history. It's been, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll continue to... to uh, to yeah, fight against, it's still going fight strong. Against. What's that? It's still going strong now. You know, it's yes, uh, yep, yep. So with my foundation, we focus on we have like one marquee ride every year. We call it MS Global. Basically, you know, every state here in the U.S. has has their uh, has their ride every summer, every spring, summer, or fall, I guess. Um, but they, I I always wondered why there wasn't like a you know. A, global something like that so we, that was that's our our event that we started and um we do we do it every year usually in september it's a week-long ride um when we've done it um let's see spain france switzerland italy um you just we need did. to come to scotland now yeah exactly i'll be up here <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just give us a good time of year with the weather. We need some. It doesn't exist, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm sure. We have about 45 minutes. We call that summertime, then it's back to winter again. Um, we, uh, we, we did uh, Northern California this year, which is great. We've done Colorado. Next year, it's going to be in New England. You know, right now, the euro, the, the euro is so strong against the dollar that uh, making the trip over to Europe is. Uh, Financially, not the smartest thing. Sure. Basically, we're trying to raise as much money as possible. Absolutely. Now, we've we've talked about 
you know, your, your early career and, you know, the, the good times and, and through some of the bad times as well. But one thing that, you know, we haven't asked is, what are you working on now? Oh, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I, start, I started a coaching company. So I'm coaching uh, cyclists. Of, um, over the years, I helped out a lot of friends, friends on, on, on the team, various teams that I was on and um, some friends who are racing domestically back here in, in the United States. Um, I helped them out with some coaching, just, just kind of for fun and to see how, how I do at it. And I think I did fairly well. And so last August, I decided to start start my own co- coaching company. I, uh, since I stopped, stopped riding, I was getting a lot of phone calls, you know, last April, May, June, July. And I thought, you know, people calling me for help for training advice and uh so i thought you know why not why not it's a great way to give back i really want to help the uh, younger generation and um surprisingly it's been very uh, rewarding i was um i didn't i didn't think it would be you know anything like 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 the feeling of you know when you're winning a race yourself but if, uh, i have a lot of satisfaction to see my, my clients succeed I mean, when I've coached athletes, I've been more nervous watching them racing than I was when I was racing myself. You know, you, you, I'm sorry, you cut off there. I say when I when I used to coach folk, um, I, I got more nervous watching them race than than when I was racing myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's same, same thing, same thing. I go out and watch them race, or or um, you know, some they're really spread out all over the all over the world. My clients, so I don't get to see see them race. Uh, in person very often, but when I do, man, I get huge butterflies in my stomach and I kind of feel sick. So, but, um, but it's very gratifying when they do well. It's just, it's fantastic. And it's, it's like you were on the bike with them as well. So how can people so get in touch? Oh, oh, thanks. Um, yeah, there's a website. It's uh, com, And, um, we just have a holding page there right now with some information on it. The, uh, the website will be up shortly. Um, there's also a, a phone number you can call. Uh, it's 303-442-4511. And um, you know, you can, on the website, there's an email address. You can drop me an email. And I'll get back to you shortly. And I can send you. Basically, I have three different programs. It's really for all different ages and abilities. You know, you don't have to be a racer. I have a lot of clients who just um, want to get ready for a, a charity ride in the summer. And um, they're not in the greatest shape now. They want to be in fighting shape come July. Um, you know, some, some people who I'm coaching just want to beat up on their buddies on the weekend, on the weekend group ride. So not all of them are racers. Sure. So I really have, you know, I think the youngest client I have is 14 years old, and the oldest is, I think, 72. So it's been a lot of fun to work with all different ages and abilities. And, uh, you know, again, it's been super rewarding, and um, I'm really enjoying it so far. Excellent. And just just to finish off, um, what 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 plans do you have for, for the future? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, right now I'm super focused on this company, building it, and trying to build a strong uh, you know, business foundation. And I've been at sites for the last, I don't know, going on 20 years. And, uh, you know, learning the whole business side of, of things has, has been, I'm figuring at that, but it's coming along pretty well. So right now I'm just focused on that, on building the business. Um, and, you know, I, I'm going to continue, you know, and hopefully the businesses will uh, will continue to, to progress. But I'll continue uh, working with my foundation. Uh, hopefully, we can find a cure for this awful d- disease of MS. Um, and you know, I, I definitely want to focus more on uh, sort of the younger generation, helping helping the uh, younger cyclists take a step from from the sort of amateur to professional ranks. Are you are you still getting out on the bike yourself a lot? What sort of level do you ride to now? Yeah, I don't ride as much as I used to, uh, just because it's you know, it's it's time consuming. It's consuming. Um, 
But I get out there. I try to ride with my clients as much as possible. Uh, you know, one-on-one time with them is great. It makes a, can help them out a lot. Uh, I've been doing some running. I'm actually getting ready for the Boston Marathon in uh, April. So I'm a little bit behind on that, but I'll give it a go. Um, so that should be uh, that should be pretty brutal. Well, best of best um, for that. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. But it's nice to be. I'm back here in Colorado now. I, I was back in Boston for about a year because my mom was really sick, so I lived back close to home. And I just got back to Colorado about a month and a half ago. And it's been great to be back here doing some skiing and um, some hiking, which my a couple dogs and they, they love it here. Yeah. So it's been fun. I think. So, uh, but I, but uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I think uh, we 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 can finish this broadcast with a comment from the chat room, and it's that one of our guys, Steel Legs, is saying he's uh, started following you on Twitter, and he you know he thinks you sound like an okay guy. Let's look forward, not back. Oh yeah, no, I, I yeah, tell, thank you so much, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just looking forward now. I'm in a lot better place than I was, uh, you know, a year or two years ago. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm happy to be done racing prof- professionally. You know, it's time for me to sort of move move on with my life. And um, you know, I, as I was saying before, I had neglected some things in my life, and it was it was time to focus on myself a little bit more and you know put put. Uh, team behind me and uh, i'm really enjoying it um you know i miss the competition once in a while but you know i don't miss the, the brutal hours on the bike every day and <laughs> having to train like a, like a madman absolutely uh, but it's certainly you know a great great memories of, of that, that period of my life but you know i'm happy to be where i'm at now and um really enjoying it and uh but certainly i, I love the sport of cycling and uh it's, a, it's a, such a beautiful sport and I want to be involved really for the rest of my life Absolutely Well, thank you very, very much Tyler, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to, to talk to you and, and as I say, thank you for, for taking some time out on a, on a Sunday morning or afternoon, whatever it is there uh, to, to talk to us Oh, well thank you guys so much It's a pleasure to talk talk with you and hopefully I'll talk to you guys again soon No, that would be brilliant Can I uh, just give a I'd like to give a quick shout out to a couple, some of my friends there at the Grand Rapids uh, Firefighters. Of course. Um, okay, thanks. <laughs> no problem. But yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Thanks again, Tyler, and uh, take care. Well, we hope you enjoyed our interview with Tyler Hamilton there. Please join us again next Sunday at 7 p.m. GMT, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time at velocast.co.uk forward slash live. Now, next week, we'll be interviewing professional women's cyclist Liz Hatch. 